Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sheikh Syed Theatre at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Dr. Susan Liotto, and I have the privilege of serving as the chair of LSE's council, our governing body. I'm delighted to be joined by students, faculty, staff, alumni, supporters, friends, and partners of the LSE, and in person for tonight's celebration. This evening, before we listen to Dr. Ngozi Akonjo-Iwela and Baroness Minouche Shafiq in conversation, we will award Dr. Ngozi with an honorary doctorate to recognize and celebrate her genuinely <laughs> to recognize and celebrate her genuinely outstanding contributions to social science and to society. Throughout her illustrious career, our honorand has used the levers of economic policy and diplomacy to shape a fairer, more prosperous, and more peaceful world and she is richly deserving of this honor. The awarding of an LSE honorary doctorate allows us to recognize extraordinary distinction and accomplishment in an area of scholarship or public activity in line with our guiding principles and vision. To be a community of people and ideas founded to know the causes of things for the betterment of society. Dr. Ngozi, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to that global community. I'm delighted to introduce LSE's president and vice chancellor, Baroness Minou Shafiq, who will now offer the traditional oration and confer the degree. Thank you, Susan. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my enormous privilege to present Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela for the award of an honorary doctorate from the London School of Economics and Political Science. I wanted to do this oration myself, uh, rather than asking a faculty member to do it, as is the custom, because I've known Ngozi for about 30 years and have long admired her courage, tenacity, and intelligence. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela was born into a family of scholars and public servants. Her mother was a medical doctor and a professor of sociology. Her father was a professor of economics and a traditional chief among the Igbo people in her state in southern Nigeria. It has been said that she's like her father, whom she described as, quote, a wonderful man, although she acknowledged, I think he was a bit gentler than me. It was a happy childhood, but one that was disrupted by the Biafran War when her family had to flee from their home and lost everything. And despite that massive setback, Ngozi's determination meant that she excelled at school in Nigeria and found her way to Harvard and then MIT, where she did a PhD in regional economics and economic development. After that, she went to the World Bank, where I had the pleasure of working with her. She spent 25 years working across every part of the institution, including South Asia, the Middle East, East Asia, Europe, Central Asia, and of course, Africa, rising to the number two position of managing director of operations. Long a champion of the poorest countries in the world, she led the replenishment of the $40 billion facility that supports low-income countries at the World Bank Group. 
She left the bank for her first stint as Nigeria's finance minister in 2003 to 6, when the country was facing an economic crisis, a huge debt burden, and was ranked by Transparency International as the, as the most corrupt place on earth. I remember saying to her, Ngozi, I think you're about to take the hardest job in the world. She chuckled in her inimitable way and then proceeded to lead a comprehensive homegrown reform program that achieved macroeconomic stability and fiscal transparency in Nigeria while tripling the growth rate to an average of 6% over three years. Her critics nicknamed her Okonjo Wahala, which means trouble woman. <laughs> she fought for transparency in government and against corruption for the first time, publishing shares of tax revenue going to the federal, state, and local level. She declared war on the culture of kickbacks, firing officials and ministers, and clamping down on the notorious letter and internet confidence trick scams by sending hundreds to jail. Her team used biometric testing to get thousands of ghost workers off the civil service payroll. She made the energy sector more transparent and targeted political and military leaders who stole crude oil, making powerful enemies at great personal risk. As she said herself, fighting corruption, corruption tends to fight back. One example of that fight back during, was during her campaign to clean up the notoriously corrupt fuel subsidy scheme in Nigeria. Her life was threatened and her mother was kidnapped. And after an agonizing five days, her mother managed to escape, demonstrating that Ngozi wasn't the only fearless woman in the family. In October 2005, she led the Nigerian team that negotiated the cancellation of 60% of Nigeria's external debt with the Paris Club and achieved Nigeria's first sovereign credit rating. I had the privilege of supporting her when I was at the Department for International Development and the UK government under Gordon Brown championed Nigeria's case. Ngozi worked tirelessly traveling around the world to make the case for debt relief. And of course she made convincing economic arguments, but I'm certain that it was her personal capability and integrity that played a vital role in persuading creditors to support it. It would not have happened without her. Over the course of her career, she has been an indefatigable champion for Africa, arguing that the continent was not a subject of charity, but of great economic potential that should be led by its citizens taking charge of their own destinies. And for us at LSE, that has a special resonance since seven post-independence African leaders studied here including Kenyatta of Kenya, Nkrumah from Ghana, and Olympio of Togo. And Ngozi also mentioned to me that many of her staff at the WTO are LSE alums, many from Africa. And that tradition continues with our Ferozlalji Institute for Africa and our program for African leadership. Ngozi embodies just the kind of leadership we hope to build, highly intelligent, brimming with integrity, and committed to the common good. And that's why she is a hero to many, especially to young Africans. 
Ngozi has also been a pioneer and trailblazer for women and girls. She's long argued that investing in women is smart economics, and investing in girls, catching them upstream, is even smarter economics. And of course, she's been a role model as the first woman to serve as Nigeria's finance minister twice and foreign minister. And she made history in 2021 as the first woman and the first African to lead the World Trade Organization in its 75-year history. Typically, she stands on principle. During the leadership selection process, Ngozi stated that the next head of the WTO should be chosen on merit, and then, if it happens to be a woman and an African, that's also good. <laughs> For those of us who've worked with her, we appreciate her no-nonsense style, her willingness to speak out against injustice, and her focus on solutions. As she herself has said, when it comes to doing my job, I keep my ego in my handbag. She also has great warmth, loyalty, and a great sense of humor. And part of that comes from the deep roots in her family. She beams with pride if you ask about her four children and her impressive husband, Ikemba Iwela, who's with us today. And while her appointment to the WTO was historic, it also triggered a massive social media trend at hashtag be like Ngozi challenge, with people all over the world copying her distinctly African style, adding fashion icon to her many achievements. <laughs> She now leads the WTO at a critical time when the world economy is emerging from a pandemic, rocked by war and supply chain disruptions, and witnessing growing protectionist sentiment. And yet, despite that difficult context, and after decades of failing global trade negotiations, Ngozi has managed to make important breakthroughs to create a more open and equitable international trading system. Once again, she has taken one of the hardest jobs in the world and is making a success of it. Ngozi once said, don't shy away from taking up space in the world. She definitely took up space, and the world is better for it. She has received too many awards for me to list them all, Finance Minister of the Year on multiple occasions, many honorary doctorates, and listings of most influential people in the world. But I'd like to think that this honorary doctorate from the LSE, an institution dedicated to the betterment of society, always taking a global perspective with a strong commitment to Africa, will have a special place in her heart. She is a true believer in the ability of economic development and international cooperation to bring peace and prosperity and to strengthen the bonds between people and nations. She's also one of the bravest people that I know. Therefore, by the authority vested in me by the Council of the London School of Economics and Political Science, I admit my dear friend Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela to the degree of Doctor of Economics. Thank you so much. Uh... Minouche, President and Vice-Chancellor, Baroness Minouche Shafiq, as everybody knows you, professors, students, friends. This is really an enormous honor. I'm so touched. 
And I want to thank you for a wonderful oration. Although with many Nigerians in the audience, I have to make sure that uh, those who took care of what we call the 419 and <laughs> other um, ills are also given due credit. So I give credit to my presidents and all those who worked to make this happen. Thank you very much. I've received honorary degrees before, and each one is special, but an LSE degree is particularly special. Let me take a little bit more than my allotted five minutes to tell you why. <laughs> so those who are standing on stage, I'm just uh, I'm looking at your heels to make sure. <laughs> I first heard of LSE very early in life because my father wanted to study economics here. Destiny had other plans though, and a scholarship took him to Germany instead. My uncle did his PhD in operations research here, and more recently, my niece earned a master's degree in energy systems here. As for me, even though I did not originally set out to become an economist, LSE was part of the conversation when I told my parents I wanted to go abroad to university after secondary school in Nigeria. My father said to me, if you're going anywhere, it has to be to the best universities in whatever country you choose. And in the UK, he listed for me for each country he thought I might go to. The U UK said LSE, Oxford, and Cambridge. <laughs> I didn't end up studying here, but this university has remained a source of inspiration and learning for me. For more than 15 years now, my dear friend, Lord Nicholas Stern, has provided incredible intellectual leadership on the economics of climate change with the new growth story. The president and vice chancellor, you've heard her, another dear friend I've known for 30 years, has given six years of stellar leadership and sterling scholarship, exemplified by her recent book. If you haven't read it, please do what we owe each other on reinventing the social contract. Those of us with an interest in international trade will be familiar with LSE's many contributions. To name just a few, Tony Venables and Stephen Redding were instrumental in pioneering the new economic geography literature, which gave us new tools to understand why the global economy looks the way it does in a world of mobile productive factors, as well as changing returns and transportation costs. Silvana, Tenrero made a seminal contribution to the estimation of gravity equations, and together with Francesco Caselli, has shed light on the very topical question of how trade relates to income volatility. In addition to the other research, Tom Sampson and Swati Dingra have been leading voices in the debate over the economic effects of Brexit. And over at the law school, Mona Paulson has done more than anyone to shed light on the history of national security considerations within the multilateral trading system. So we from the WTO feel quite at home here at LSE. <laughs> In addition, LSE is well represented at the WTO, as Minush said. My chief of staff, Dr. Bright Okogu, earned his bachelor's and master's degrees here before moving to Oxford for doctoral work in the audience. Our new chief economist just recruited since 1st of January, Ralph Ossa, is a proud LSE alumnus. And I want to tell any aspiring trade economist in this audience 
that Ralph won the WTO Young Economist Award back in 2009 for research that he did here as part of his PhD. For me personally, LSE is unique in ways that speak to my own professional and life experiences. It is all in the name, the London School of Economics and Political Science. After my formal training in economics at Harvard and MIT, I worked at the World Bank for 25 years. Then in 2003, I found myself thrust into politics when the then reform-minded uh, government of President Obasanjo named me finance minister, the first woman to hold that job in the country's history. I also went to become, on to become Nigeria's longest-serving fi finance minister, a total of seven years under two presidents. And as foreign minister, as Minouche said, as a policymaker, delivering results that improve the lives of the people you serve requires an understanding of how politics, policy, and economics interact on the ground. And that is exactly what LSE has worked to do since day one. Its first prospectus from back in 1895 said the school's goal would be, and I quote, the study and investigation of the concrete facts of industrial life and the actual working of economic and political relations as they exist or have just existed in the United Kingdom and foreign countries. Understanding and nav navigating the actual workings of financial markets and <clears throat> difficult economic reforms in the context of domestic and international political realities was at the center of my first term as Nigeria's finance minister. Our government successfully wiped out the country's crippling $30 billion sovereign debt owed to the Paris Club. We also privatized several loss-making public enterprises and restructured government institutions and liberalized key sectors of the economy like telecoms. In my second term as finance minister, we reformed the government's financial management systems to fight corruption and improve governance. We saved Nigerians billions of dollars from ghost workers and yes, ghost pensioners. But few things are more political than reforms like the ones we undertook, which create winners and losers. And you have to understand both the economics and politics of reform to build a coalition that is strong enough to contain the losers. Get it wrong and your reform efforts will suffer. At the WTO, we're also grappling with reforms in a fast-changing world that is not only dealing with multiple crises, health, energy, food, climate, but also undergoing rapid technological change. Our rule book needs to be updated to meet 21st century challenges. That work has begun. Last summer, all 164 WTO members broke a two decades long deadlock and reached an agreement to curb $22 billion in harmful fishery subsidies that are depleting marine fish stocks and harming the sustainability of our oceans. They delivered SDG, Sustainable Development Goals 14.6. This was the WTO's first ever agreement to put environmental sustainability at, at its core. Members also reached a compromise on a proposed intellectual property waiver that will bolster the ability of developing countries to manufacture COVID-19 vaccines. In response to food insecurity, they agreed to reduce 
export restrictions and curb volatility of food prices on international markets. Looking ahead, trade is a force multiplier for climate mitigation and adaptation. As Nick Stern has shown, decarbonizing our economies is at the heart of the new growth story. But there's much more we can do to use trade to make decarbonization faster and cheaper. We are also seeking to proactively manage the potential trade tensions that may arise as governments step up climate action. I'm sure all of you have heard about the IRA and the EU's new, industry, uh, new um, policies towards uh, greening the, the um, EU economies. As part of our reforms, we are seeking to show that the multilateral trading system underpinned by the WTO is about people and that it can deliver results that help solve the difficult problems of high food and energy prices and ill health that people confront every day. After all, the WTO's purpose is spelled out in our founding Marrakesh Agreement. It is to enhance living standards, to help create employment and support sustainable development. I wanted to spend this time to really spell it out because a lot of young people do not believe in the WTO and feel that it's just another capitalist institution that is doing people wrong. So I've taken, that's why I took more than my allotted time, <laughs> so that I can spell it out to you that it's all about people. So I'm coming to the end. Reforming the WTO is also about inclusion. Using trade to include those people and geographies left out of the recent wave of globalization. There are many people in this audience who know about inclusion. We have Mo Ibrahim here who's tried to be inclusive with the governance reforms he's tried to instigate on the continent. Sarah Brown is here and all her efforts in education to include those who have been left out. So trade can be a force for inclusion. Many of you have heard of deglobalization. We don't want to hear about that. We want to talk about re-globalization, a reimagined globalization that includes those who have been left out. Poor people in rich countries and poor countries who never benefited. That's the type of globalization we are, we are promoting. So ladies and gentlemen, dear students, you can see that all my working life has been about public service and reforms. It's also been about managing the tough politics that comes with such reforms. But the opportunity, whether nationally or multilaterally, to design and implement policies that change people's lives is an absolute privilege. It is a privilege that your president, Baroness Shafiq, also knows. Finally, Minouche, of course, will soon be leaving one great institution for another. Her absence will, I'm sure, leave a void. But this newly minted honorary alumna of LSE is confident that the institution will continue to be one of the, to be the world's leading source of ideas and research to address real world problems of economics and politics well into the next century. Once again, thank you very much for the honor. Now, if I could ask the audience to remain in your seats, we're going to do a quick costume change, and I will be back with Ngozi to have a conversation with each other and then with all of you. So please wait.
and it'll just be a moment. Thank you very much. Okay, we're back. So Ngozi, what a treat. So I'm going to start off with a few questions, and then I will take some questions from the audience and also from our online audience. But let me start with a few. And I'm going to start with uh, kind of where you, where you left off, which is that you know, many people think of trade as an incredibly technical, dry, boring subject. None of those people would have attended the LSE, I might add, just to be clear. But you did say that this is a time when globalization is becoming a target across the political spectrum, both the left and the right. Uh, particularly in advanced economies, it's been blamed for everything from the destruction of communities, the destruction of jobs, climate degradation. So how do you, as in effect the world's leading advocate for trade, how do you respond and put a human face on a subject which is becoming unpopular in many quarters? Well, let me thank you, Minush, and it's a real privilege to be with all of you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'll just start with a story. When I said I was going to do the WTO job, um, in my family, we normally discuss everything with our children and sit together to see if it makes sense. But my second son, Okechukwu, objected very vehemently, and he said, you cannot do this. This is terrible. You're going to the WTO. It's against everything. He's an activist by nature. And that was when I knew I had a problem. <laughs> so I had to sit down to explain to him. You see, I had looked at this Marrakesh agreement and seen what the purpose of the WTO is, as inscribed, written down, that it is to enhance living standards to create employment and to support sustainable development. And I said, what could be more noble than that? What could, it's all about people. So when people say it doesn't uh, trade or the WTO doesn't have a human face, that's not true. And that's what I wanted to try to change. How is it that over time, these noble objectives and purpose have been put aside, and deglobalization with trade at the heart of it uh, has been so, um, you know, vilified. Now, you know, that's not to say that deglobalization uh, did not leave people behind. As I said in my speech, there were poor people in rich countries and poor countries who were not included, and people put trade at the center of globalization. But I also want to say that technology is also a part of what has happened in many countries, mm -hmm. taking away jobs. And people mm -hmm. often, you know, coal miners in West Virginia, it's more the changing, changes in technology that have taken jobs rather than trade. But that being said, all I want to say is that trade is about people. One in five calories consumed in the world today is traded. Just think about it one in five calories. So without trade, there'll be many people who will go hungry in the world because they just don't have the land or the water resources to grow food. And if we couldn't take it from one part of the world to another, what would happen to those people? They wouldn't have enough food to eat. So humanizing it, I'll leave it at that. There are many things I could say. It's lifted a billion people out of poverty and so on and so forth. Okay. So let me 
turn to trade negotiations. So it's now been 35 years since the Uruguay round, which was the last successful multilateral negotiation that under the general agreement for tariffs and trade. And the most recent negotiations, the Doha round, stalled for many years, and it was supposed to conclude in 2005, and most people now think that that is dead. We've had some progress on regional trade agreements, but do you think there is any future for expanded global multilateral trade agreements? Absolutely, Ninoush, absolutely. And we just proved it. In June of last year, after many years of not having successful negotiations, mm. as you pointed out, WTO members successfully negotiated the fishery subsidies agreement that I just mentioned. Many of you will know that in 1970, 10% of our fish stocks in our oceans were overfished. By now, it's almost 50%. And that, that overfishing is encouraged by harmful subsidies that encourage overfishing vessels that shouldn't be, um, you know, outfishing uh, types of nets, you name it. Um, $22 billion worth of harmful subsidies. And they negotiated to do away with them. So I, I, I can't, that's a multilateral agreement. Mm. And let me name another one. We were, the World Food Program was having difficulties, having access to humanitarian supplies for people in need. And almost 10 years, they've been trying to negotiate at the WTO not to have any export restrictions or prohibitions on the WFE's purchase of humanitarian supplies. And they did, hadn't done it. It got done mm. last June. And that is what has helped the WFP. I, in fact, I was in a meeting with David Beasley yesterday to be able to access these food supplies um, more easily than before. So I could go on and on, but those are two very basic examples of things, uh, of success with multilateral negotiations. So it's not the grand rounds anymore, right. you know, that we're sort of the formula before. Yeah. I think now we'll have specific multilateral negotiations that we can begin and tidy up rather than looking for a grand round like the Doha. Right. So. And those grand rounds were needed in the beginning because so many countries had so much to do in terms of broader trade liberalization. Yes, so and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I make, let me make clear, I'm not saying the Doha is dead, by the way. It's a development round and there are many developing countries who are upset hmm. about it. But I'm just saying it will be more difficult to have those kinds of negotiations going forward. Say something about the African continental free trade area, which has been recently agreed and could have consequences given Africa's size and economic potential. What do you think about that? I think it's, it's fantastic. I, a fantastic proposition. Mm. It's the largest free trade area, 54 countries, you know, by, by size, um, a number of countries involved in it. With a market of about 1.4 billion and counting, uh, this could really help Africa deliver its objectives for um, Agenda 2063, which is to make a more prosperous Africa and a more industrialized Africa. If you have a, an, a market of that size, it allows countries to add value 
to their products. Of course, to trade. We can't all be selling to each other in Africa the same things we produce. Mm. So we, we need to add value to products. We need to specialize. Um, but I, be, I believe having this gives some uh, oomph, you know, some support to that. Uh, Intra-Africa trade is now about 15 to 20 percent. It's too, too it's little. Too low. Yeah. too low. So we need to double that in the next decade. Africa's share of global trade is about 3%, slightly less since the pandemic. Mm. We need to double and triple that. And I think having the African continental free trade area will help. Now, to make it work, we need to improve infrastructure. <coughs> we, of course, need to reduce the cost of trade on the continent, which is too high, is too high yeah. equivalent to more than a 300% tariff. Um, and we need to do away with bureaucratic procedures so that people and goods can move freely. Okay. I want to turn to the current economic conjuncture, as economists say. Uh, we, after a period in which you and I worked on international development where we had quite good progress on economic growth, quite good progress on poverty alleviation, we've now had the pandemic, the shocks to food and fuel prices, and monetary tightening in the advanced economies, which has seen a reversal of capital flows away from developing countries, which means that many developing countries are now on the precipice of both low growth and very high debt, uh, worse than we have seen in decades. You have dealt with debt issues for a very, very long time. And while we have this crisis on our doorsteps, we're also at a moment when we need more finance to help low-income countries address climate change and particularly cope with adaptation. Do you see a way out of this current conjuncture, which is so adverse for low-income countries? Minouche, I do, um, actually. Uh, but you know, many people say I'm an optimist by nature. There's so much happening in the world that is uh, so disconcerting and sobering. Sometimes I feel for young people because every time you turn on your TV, it's one piece of bad news after the other. And of course, for poor countries and poor developing countries, as you say, they're suffering from debt distress, mm. um, a very low fiscal space uh, for many of them. But I do think that a way out can be seen in restructuring the debt of some of these countries and outright cancellation for some. Look, the problems we are seeing today, they didn't cause them. They certainly didn't cause the pandemic. They didn't cause the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And they're certainly not the ones who had the emissions that le are leading to many climate change events. So if you look at that, then what you need to say is, look, the rich countries who were able to implement $14 trillion in fiscal stimulus during mm -hmm. the pandemic, can afford to support these countries by restructuring and, and you know, right off, writing off some of the, of, the, of the debt. That will create the fiscal space to invest in health and, and education and food and other things that are needed. Secondly, there's actually an opportunity in, the, in this conjuncture that we are talking about. You know, we've all seen that supply chains are vulnerable. We, the, the supply chains are too concentrated for certain sectors and products in a few countries. Vaccines, 80% of the world's vaccines are exported by 10 countries. Semiconductors, we've seen 
and chips manufacture of more than 90% or 90% or so in one country. So it's clear we need to build resilience in the world. Now, how can we do it? Poor countries can also be places where you can, you can deconcentrate and, and de diversify supply chains. Mm -hmm. It's not only in rich countries or big emerging markets. There are small countries and poor countries who have the right business environment. And so this is an opportunity to help build those supply chains, bring those countries into the global value chains, create jobs and employment, and help lift them out of the conjuncture that they are in. So that's, that's uh, one way of looking at it, opportunity in the face of diversity. Okay, much more optimistic. Last question for me. You have spent much of your career doing diplomacy, economic diplomacy and support of multilateralism. And in recent years, we've seen some big failures of international diplomacy. You mentioned vaccines and the shameful vaccine apartheid that we saw during the COVID crisis. We've also seen some successes, um, you know, the ozone hole and how that was solved through multilateral agreement and cooperation. What's your view on the state of multilateral diplomacy and international cooperation today? Not in good shape. <laughs> you know, every day in my job, what I deal with is geopolitical tensions. I live it daily. Tensions between the US and China, between the EU and China, between the EU and the US, between Russia and Ukraine, <laughs> and between the Western countries and Russia. So it's a daily diet that one has to, to, to manage. So international cooperation and diplomacy is not in, in very good shape. Um, but that, does that mean we don't need it? No, we absolutely need now strong multilateralism and international cooperation because we're dealing with global public goods or bads, mm -hmm. which no one country can solve on its own. You can't solve a pandemic on your own. You certainly cannot solve climate change so we need this cooperation uh, uh, you know, to come together to be able to solve this. And actually, if I may say so, the WTO, I think, is the only multilateral organization that managed to get some multilateral agreements recently, it's true. believe it or not. Um, so yeah, there's hope. And I think we should strengthen the multilateral organizations. We need to know when we have strategic competition and when we need strategic cooperation. Okay, very good. Let me turn to the audience now. If you could put your hands up in the usual way. Wow. All right. <laughs> I'm going to ask for really short questions so I can get a lot of them in. Start with the woman at the end here, the gentleman there, and maybe the woman here. We'll take three questions from the audience, and then I'm going to turn to the online audience for a moment. And if you could just introduce yourself briefly before you ask a question. Hi, doctor. My name is Halima Kadrawi. It's it's an honor and a privilege to have you here. And I'm sure many LSE students are just happy to have you here. Um, my question is, what is the greatest obstacle you have faced in your professional or personal life? The greatest obstacle, obstacle you faced in, my, in your career? In my career. OK. Mm. You can, you you can think like about that one. That's <laughs> okay. a tough one. <laughs> All right, I'll take the gentleman in the beige right behind there. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. 
LSEIQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. Uh, my name's Adam. I'm a double degree student with Columbia in New York. Um, and my question is... Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have a joint program with Columbia, so he's an LSE Columbia I person. See. Okay. <laughs> and very good. So um, I take, I'll take this opportunity to um, sort of look more back at your role. Obviously, you've, you've mentioned there are, there are multiple um, sort of ongoing trade wars um, and looking more specifically at your role at um, encouraging the de-weaponization of trade as a means of political retribution. Um, coming from Australia, we saw recently with lobsters and wine were what was essentially put on the table as um, the previous conservative government's uh, claims against the origins of COVID-19, and it was obviously a, an effect that hit certain agricultural industries very hard. So my question obviously is, where do you see your role more specifically at addressing that? Thank you. Did you get that? Okay. And then the woman right here. Yeah, hello, my name is Sofia. I come from Macedonia. So my question is, coming from Macedonia and being a young woman starting her career, uh, and Macedonia being a country where politics is um, taking a backseat right now, I would like to ask, what is a fight worth fighting for career-wise? And sort of what is your advice when you look at your family and yeah, <laughs> young people? on what to do next. Thank you. Okay. Mm. These are not easy questions. <laughs> I think the easiest is the de-weaponization. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the London School of Economics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's always easier to answer professional and economics questions. Yes. Than, <laughs> um, but, uh, well, maybe, I, I, the greatest obstacle I've faced, in a way, is uh, people underestimating you. Um, but you know, when I, but I had really good advice. My father, who died three years ago, was marvelous, and uh, he told me when I was going away to college, as I said in my speech, when I wanted to go to university, <clears throat> I told him I would like to go abroad, and. Um, uh, I was going to go to Cambridge, and then I ended up in Harvard because my mother wanted to finish her PhD at B Boston University so she could keep an eye on me, a teenager. <laughs> um, and my father said to me, when you go, you are a young woman, you're black, and you're African. And if people have problems with you or you sense you're being discriminated against, it's not your problem, it's their problem. So use it, don't let it stop you, use it to your advantage. But when you're underestimated because you walk into a room and your skin color says maybe you don't know anything and the way you dress makes you look different, so people don't give you the microphone when they should, or they don't take your question, or they don't uh, let you speak. Don't worry about it. You know, underestimation works because it allows you to really come in. And when you say what you have to say, people sit up. 
Um, so people let it bother them, but I, I, because of that very strong advice, I didn't let it bother me. I used it to my advantage. And of course, as you get older, it, it gets a bit better. <laughs> um, then what is the role of uh, the, the de-weaponization? Yeah, the role of the WTO. As you know, we have a dispute settlement system at the WTO, the only one in the world where countries can bring complaints against each other, or cases, if you will, um, on trade and, and get some kind of judgment. And um, so the WTO has that role, but really having countries come to that system should not always be the first recourse. And uh, so we try to encourage countries don't use trade as a weapon. We see more and more of it with tariffs and other, um, you know, other obstacles uh, and export restrictions or extra taxes on goods. Um, so our role is to try to de-escalate the situation, to get the countries to talk to each other, uh, and ultimately, if all else fails, they can bring a case at the WTO. But we don't like being at the end of trade frictions. We tried to uh, stop it before. Now, actually, in the case of Australia, I was recently there with your prime minister, with the minister of uh, foreign affairs, and they were beginning to see an opening with China to dialogue. And this is really the best way. You see, it's working. Mm. They are talking to each other. There have been several missions back and forth, even though they lodged their case. But I think they can settle it more by talking dialoguing and trying to unstick the situation so they don't have to go through, through three years of adjudication. So we try to use all the means, dialogue, arbitration, mediation, to stop these frictions. And, then and the last one is a uh, fight worth fighting for. What is a fight worth fighting for? Well, um, in your career, as a young woman, I think you will meet, still meet many obstacles. And I, I think Minush will agree. Situation is really improving for women. And you see young women today, they are fearless. And they think the world is their oyster. Uh, so, but even at that, they're still, uh, you will still have uh, obstacles in your way. And you have to decide. It's not every fight that you need to fight. It's not every time that you have to show you can win something. You know, sometimes you can lay low and lose to win. Uh, but I can't tell you which fight to pick and which one not to pick, because that is very particular. But I can tell you that don't fight every fight. Yeah. But any fight that is going to damage your reputation or bring down your professionalism, I would fight that. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you know, any of the others, you can decide whether it's time to stand up to someone or just let it go. Um, and, 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 you know, and then you asked about, uh, you know, just a career being a woman. And, and there's no right answer to having a career and managing a family. I wish there was a recipe uh, that one could hand out. You know, we, I did a book. I'm sorry I don't have a copy. Yes. 
on women in leadership. Yeah, yeah, it's called Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. And I wrote it with Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia. And we interviewed uh, eight women leaders plus, and looked at ourselves um, to, to, to learn what lessons uh, they are for young women in leadership. By the way, I'm not advertising it. You don't have to buy it. <laughs> you know? And uh, so we interviewed Jacinda Ardern. That's what I really wanted to say. And Jacinda, we asked her, you had a baby whilst being a prime minister, only the second woman. How do you make it, uh, how do you manage, balance, work and life? She said, there's nothing like balance. We just make it work. So make it work, be there for your children when the important times are there. That's what I did. You can go to every school event, but which one is the most important for them? You need to be there. Um, you need a good partner. Mm. I had one. Mm, yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to turn to the online audience. So, Danny, give us uh, some of the questions you've got uh, online. Message received. Only hardcore technical questions here. <laughs> Brandy Opie from Ghana says, what lessons from the WTO's past should African leaders use to center humans at the heart of the African continental free trade area, and particularly to protect smaller economies from dumping? Mm. Joe, uh, John Walden asks, uh, the AFCFTA is a huge opportunity for Africa, but success is largely contingent upon removal of the plethora of non-tariff barriers. Uh, WTO aims to support this, but many African countries do not seem to be getting support for their Category C commitments. Is there a problem here, and what is the solution? And then Molly Pugh-Jones, LSE alum, says, recognizing the interconnections between trade and health policy, how does the WTO plan to engage and work with future pandemic preparedness mechanisms? For instance, the WHO's pandemic instrument. Okay. Well, these are all technical. <laughs> nice and easy. Yeah, nice and easy. Um, look, lessons from the past for the African continental free trade area. The biggest problem that I, I encountered at the WTO, apart from the fact that its noble objective has been kind of forgotten, is lack of trust. Countries do not trust each other. Developing countries don't trust developed and vice versa. When you don't have trust, it's very difficult to negotiate an agreement. So everything is slow and gets stuck. So for the African continental free trade area, the one big thing we need to avoid is this creeping distrust, which had built up in the WTO. Over time, the Doha round mm. was not completed, so developing countries believe the place is not for them. You see? So that builds mistrust. There are countries who feel that China has subsidies that undermine our competitiveness. That builds mistrust. China believes that there are many uh, Western countries or dev other developed countries who have a lot of agricultural subsidies that also undermine competition. So there's so many issues about trust. So that's the biggest lesson. We must, in the African continental free trade area, not allow distrust to creep in. Once it does, we can have all the protocols come signed. We won't be able to negotiate any agreement. 
I think the second thing um, is... Second was uh, AFCTA and non-tariff barriers. Yeah, huge opportunity for the... Uh, and what does the WTO um, do to support? Mm -hmm. The WTO is actually quite active in supporting the African continental free trade area. Um, and people often ask me, there's so many regional and bilateral agreements. Mm. Does that mean, does that, is that a problem for the WTO? The answer is no. 75% of world trade is still done on WTO, most favored nation terms. So it's not an, a problem. And we do support this. We've just spent about 3.5 million Swiss francs building capacity of African countries through the AU, the African Union. Uh, asked us. So we go to the countries directly when they want to build capacity to know how to implement certain protocols or, you know, how their official strain. We've been doing that and we'll continue to do it. We don't have lots of money, but it's a, a, a real priority for us. So, And then the final one was trade and health. Yes, we had quite a tough time on trade and health issues during the pandemic. But you all see that after a lot of struggle, we did get the, IP, uh, the TRIPS waiver, the intellectual property waiver for vaccines um, uh, to be, um, for greater flexibilities to be introduced so that developing countries can manufacture their own vaccines for a period of uh, five years. This is huge as far as I'm concerned because Africa imports 99% of its vaccines and 90% of its pharmaceuticals. And this, this pandemic showed we are very vulnerable. We need to build our own pharmaceutical industry. So we did that. We are now trying to see if it can be extended to therapeutics and diagnostics. Mm -hmm. um, but so for the future pandemics, how are we preparing? Part of trying to decentralize manufacturing is part of preparedness. Many presidents in developing countries, not just in Africa, but even Latin America and some parts of Asia, felt they were caught literally with their pants down. <laughs> Sorry for the analogy during the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, because they couldn't explain to their populations why they did not have access to these uh, medicines. So by trying to get through the STRIPS agreement and others we are working. And we've seen, I've just been going through the draft, zero draft of the, of the uh, treaty, the pandemic treaty, and there are lots of sections that relate to WTO. Luckily, there's very strong cooperation be between WHO, WTO, and WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. The three of us have a tripartite agreement with Dr. Tedros and myself and Darren Tang uh, where we meet to try and go over issues. So hopefully we'll feed into the pandemic treaty and make sure we don't have things that conflict and we can get the best agreement for people, especially developing country people. Okay. I think we have time for another round of questions in the audience. Really? That's okay. Is that all right? <laughs> Are you fading? Make them really easy. <laughs> So many. All right. Uh, let me take the woman in gray in the back. I'll take this person, and I need a gentle. I'll take you right there. Is that all right? Sorry about that. Hi. Thank you. So I'm Lucy White. Um, I'm an LSE alumni, and I also have an offer to go to University of Cambridge to study public policy shortly. Um, so I have two of your three. Um, universities. Um, last week I was just in Cambodia with your colleagues from the WTO and the EIF 
um, enhanced integrated framework. For, for the workshop? Yes, the regional consultation on LDC5 in yeah. Siem Reap, Cambodia. Um, so I have twofold questions. So one will be, um, what do you think, Ngozi, would happen if Ghana stops exporting raw materials such as cocoa beans and the DRC stops exporting cobalt and coltan? And then my second question is, uh, tomorrow evening I have a dinner in Parliament with the Nigerian High Commissioner and many other High Commissioners here. So what would you like me to say to the Nigerian <laughs> High Commissioner, Ambassador Sarafa, Sarafa on your behalf? And also I'm going to let Wam Kelly Mene know that uh, we're here to, together today. Thank you. I'll take one over here. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I should answer this twofold and then you take two more. Okay, go for it. Yeah. So what would happen if Ghana stopped exporting cocoa and uh, DRC cobalt? What would happen? It would be a loss to the rest of the world that needs these products. But it could be good if they added value to it. So that's what I would say. African countries don't always have to be exporting commodities and raw materials. That doesn't create as many good jobs as we need. So if they stop exporting that, they should add value to it. And actually, Ghana is making some of the nicest chocolates now. Mm, yes. I don't know if you've tried them. I have a box in my refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, very good. And uh, cobalt, I, I, I hope that DRC will not allow these exports just in uh, raw materials uh, to escape it, trying to add some kind of value to it. So that's my answer, add value. And then dinner with the Nigerian Com High Commission and, and who else? Yes. Okay, just say hi to them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Um, Indidi Njaku, um, I'm the chair. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> it's a tight slot, sorry, I haven't said. Um, Indidi Njaku, I'm the chair of an African diaspora organization that's turning 30 this year called the African Foundation for Development Afford. Um, so, as a Nigerian, um, uh, I, I just wanted to um, have a question with regards to Nigeria. So many see um, Nigeria as pivotal um, in terms of the continent of, um, um, of Africa as the largest economy in Africa. Um, so my question to you, as Nigerians go to the poll um, this, this month, what advice or recommendations would you uh, give to the incoming president with regards to increasing inter-Africa trade, but also global trade within, uh, the, uh, within Nigeria? And I've got one more here. Okay. Uh, yeah, the gentleman right there in the middle of the row. Hi, I'm Nick Ray and I'm from Iran. In 1996, Iran, under reformist government, applied for accession to WTO. However, its accession was blocked by the, by the U.S. and the, uh, political actions and the fact that accession to WTO requires unanimous agreement. 
I want to know what has WTO done in the recent years to decrease the level of politicization into its ruling? Thank you. To decrease the deadlock on this? The level of politicization. Oh, level of politicization. Okay. Mm -hmm. These decisions. Mm -hmm. should, I should I take one more? All right, I'll take this one here. Uh, thank you. My name is Jake. Uh, I'm a health justice advocate from, from London. Um, you mentioned in your opening remarks um, about the compromise on a potential waiver on IP for COVID-19 vaccines, uh, and you briefly touched on um, the ongoing uh, waiver discussions for tests and treatments. Um, so I wondered what you think of the request for another delay to TRIPS discussions on COVID-19 tests and treatments. Uh, is this just a delaying tactic from rich nations like the US to derail the issue? Um, and more broadly, on the subject of IP, would you support an intellectual property waiver for green technologies in order to um, tackle the climate crisis? Thanks. Okay. So those are all really easy. Negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the, the question on uh, Nigeria and uh, what would I advise the incoming president um, on inter-African inter trade. Well, first of all, I hope you go and vote. <laughs> but uh, second of all, I think before we get to trade, we have to stabilize our macroeconomic environment. That's the first thing we have to do. Uh, we, we have double-digit inflation. We have a large fiscal deficit. Um, we have mounting debt. So we have quite a few issues. It was during my time and Dr. Kogu here that we rebased the economy with this chief statistician who worked really hard um, to, 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 and we became the largest economy. We had not rebased for 24 years. So we need to get back to basics and stabilize the economy, get the fiscal deficit re reduced, um, you know, get inflation down, and then we can, as we do these things, you know, trade will, in, non-oil, non-energy products, will it will be much more encouraging uh, for things because our growth will improve, the trade will improve, and things will come along. That's one. Two, to trade better and more, we have to add more value to our products. So the same advice applies to us. We have agricultural products. We can do better there and add value. Of course, we are adding some value to our gas now through the Dangote oil and gas through the refinery and the fertilizer. We should do more with petrochemicals and renewables because those are fossil fuels and we have to start thinking how to transition out of that. Um, and then lastly, we do have a wonderful body in tech, in those, uh, tech environment with young people mm. who are doing amazing things. And we've raised about $1.2 billion in venture capital into, into the tech uh, the tech um, sector this year. So don't do anything to ruin it or spoil it. <laughs> See how you can support it uh, and support the creative industries. I think we have so many sources of growth in the country. We just need to let them work. Very good. Okay. And, and then, then accession of Iran. Iran and delays WTO. Accession, the WTO is an organization built on consensus. So when they set it up, they said no decision can be reached until every single member agrees. 
Unfortunately, I wasn't there when they made those agreements. <laughs> you know, so, but we have this consensus approach. It has worked for the organization. I still think it's a good thing in the sense that it gives small and poor countries a voice. Because any one member, if they don't agree, they can make things happen. So for Iran, unfortunately, if all members don't agree, and it's not the only case, then it will be, not be possible. So it's not that special rules have been made for Iran. It's just that the way the organization works, if one or two members decide that something would happen, that's, that's the way it goes. And, and trade is very political. So depoliticizing trade is going to be almost impossible. Delay, uh, sorry, the therapeutics and um, diagnostics. Um, well, I hope that the US has asked for a study um, on the validity of asking for a waiver to be extended to the therapeutics and diagnostics. It has a special process. So that's not going to finish till October. So they've asked for that time. So we hope that maybe when it's done, we'll see if there's movement on that. Until that time, it's a little difficult. On the green tech, I couldn't agree more. We're going to see more of this type of argument. And I hope we'll find a way, because really, uh, trade needs to help to spread green technologies. That's one of the things we can do for adaptation and mitigation and for decarbonization. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.